President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will meet at the White House today to try and reach an agreement on the federal debt limit. It's Wednesday, February 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Fed is expected to hike interest rates again today in an attempt to slow down inflation. Some economists believe those hikes are working. If you were writing the description of what a good resolution to the crises we've been in looks like, this is what it looks like. Also this hour, President Biden's victory lap for federal funding of major infrastructure projects and a farewell to the queen of the skies as Boeing delivers its final 747 jumbo jet. Between three to four hundred tons of aircraft, it's absolutely uncanny, isn't it? And yet it just floats, doesn't it? Absolutely floats. Clouds give way to sun today. It'll be in the 30s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden will meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today. Republicans and Democrats are at odds over raising the federal government's debt ceiling. The government cannot borrow more money to pay bills it has already incurred unless Congress acts. The Treasury Department is now taking extraordinary action to prevent a catastrophic default. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. President Biden and congressional Democrats have repeatedly argued that the nation's debt ceiling should be raised without conditions, pointing to past precedent. But some Republicans appear ready to use the showdown as a bargaining chip to force cuts in government spending. The White House warns that not lifting the borrowing limit would result in the U.S. defaulting on its debt for the first time ever. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said that Republicans will not allow a default and that cuts to Social Security and Medicare would be off the table in negotiations. Without an increase by early June, the government will run out of money to pay its bills. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The House Judiciary Committee will hold its first hearing of the year this morning on the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border. NPR's Joel Rose reports House Republicans have already scheduled multiple hearings on border issues. The House Judiciary Committee hearing will focus on what its chairman, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, is calling, quote, Biden's border crisis. Republicans blame the administration's policies for record numbers of border apprehensions over the past two years. The Biden administration disputes that and argues that its latest enforcement measures are working. The witness list for this judiciary panel hearing includes a border sheriff from Arizona, the chief judge of a county in West Texas, and the co-founder of a nonprofit that works to spread awareness of fentanyl poisoning. The House Oversight Committee has scheduled its own hearing on the border for next week. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. Separately, the House Government Oversight Committee will hold a hearing this morning. Republican lawmakers want to track spending on programs that supported small businesses and stimulated the economy during the pandemic. Today is the funeral for motorist Tyree Nichols. He died after a brutal beating by Memphis police earlier this month. Vice President Harris will attend today's service. Forecasters say a dangerous ice storm is pelting the south with numerous ice warnings in Texas. The site, poweroutage.us, says about 140,000 Texas customers do not have electricity. Police in Omaha, Nebraska, say they fatally shot a gunman in a Target store yesterday. The armed man had opened fire with an assault-style weapon but it is not yet clear if he fired directly at anyone. Omaha Police Lieutenant Neil Bonacci says he's grateful no civilians were injured. We've learned a lot from other um, other jurisdictions, other areas, other cities that have unfortunately experienced this. The suspect has not been named. This is NPR News.
From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's no school again today in Woburn. Teachers there are on strike for a third day. The strike continues after their union and school officials couldn't come to an agreement on a contract last night. Mayor Scott Galvin says he believes there's a fair offer on the table. I think the taxpayers are frustrated. Parents are extremely frustrated. The inconvenience continues for their children. They have to find uh, different arrangements for uh, daycare, and it's becoming uh, a real problem for the city. Both sides are expected back at the bargaining table later today. School is also canceled in Nantucket today. The closure comes after a ransomware attack sent students home early yesterday. School officials say they're working to fix Internet service. They're also warning parents not to use school devices at home until further notice. They fear that would compromise home networks. Black, Asian, and Hispanic patients in Massachusetts have worse experiences with their primary care doctors than white patients. A new report finds that's true across nearly every measure. As WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports, some of the state's largest health organizations are joining forces to try to address the disparities. The survey of 24,000 commercially insured patients was conducted by the nonprofit Massachusetts Health Quality Partners. Barbara Rabson is Health Quality Partners president and CEO. She says a lack of implicit bias training and doctor burnout are among the causes. We really need to look to patients to tell us more about what's going on. We tend in our healthcare system not to listen so much to our patients, but this is the ideal way to understand how our healthcare system is doing. Blue Cross Blue Shield, Mass General Brigham, and Point32 Health have all signed on to an initiative to standardize health equity research statewide. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Massachusetts is getting federal grants to improve road safety and bring down roadway deaths. The over $30 million will go to different communities in the state to improve roads and sidewalks. The first round of funding will go to Boston and Springfield to improve safety at dangerous intersections. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. A heads up for riders on the Orange Line. The T says there are delays of up to 15 minutes right now because of a medical emergency at Malden Center. In sports, the Celtics will be at the Garden tonight to take on the Brooklyn Nets. The Bruins are back on the ice tonight as they visit the Toronto Maple Leafs. Snow flurries over the Cape and South Shore are slowly tapering off. It'll be cloudy to start today, but will eventually become mostly sunny. Temperatures will only get to the lower 30s, clear overnight with a low around 20. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 30s. Blustery and extremely cold weather move in by Friday night. It's 22 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden says he will not negotiate with Republicans over whether to pay the nation's debts. He's expected to hold firm on that position when he meets with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the White House today. It's the first time the two have met since McCarthy became Speaker. They face a recurring problem 
that grows out of a quirk of American law. Congress effectively votes twice on federal spending. They vote once for popular federal programs and then vote separately to allow the unpopular borrowing to finance those same programs. Many lawmakers vote yes for one thing while voting no on the other. Speaker McCarthy has said he wants cuts on future spending before the House will pay its existing bills. Let's ask White House correspondent Asma Khalid some questions about this. So, Asma, what message is the president trying to send to Kevin McCarthy? Well, his opening position is that raising the debt ceiling is not a negotiation. He says it's an obligation. Uh, You know, the situation here is that a couple of weeks ago, the Treasury Department said that the U.S. had already reached its debt limit. And that means, you know, it could be in major trouble if there's not an agreement to raise the debt ceiling by this summer. Uh, This news, of course, has been rattling financial markets and investors who don't want to see economic uncertainty. And so the White House position, at least publicly, is that it absolutely will not negotiate around the debt ceiling. We've heard this from the president directly. And A, there has been a lot of lead up to this meeting between Biden and McCarthy. You know, I would say some public jockeying we've seen uh, yesterday. In fact, the White House circulated a memo saying the president intends to push McCarthy to commit to never defaulting on the United States financial obligations. There's been a lot of public jockeying, actually. So what do Republicans want? Essentially, they want concessions in terms of future spending or promises around future spending. Uh, They see this as an opportunity for leverage because Republicans now control the House. Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, the newly elected Republican Speaker, told CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday that he does not want to see the U.S. default, but he blames President Biden for being unwilling to negotiate. I know the president said he didn't want to have any discussions, but I think it's very important that our whole government is designed to find compromise. I want to find a reasonable and a responsible way that we can lift the debt ceiling but take control of this runaway spending. There was even some more public jockeying yesterday. Um, McCarthy took to Twitter to respond directly and publicly to Biden ahead of this meeting. He said he's not interested in political games and he is coming to the White House to negotiate for the American people. All right. Not a lot on details there. I mean, has he proposed any specific cuts? I will say it is unclear what House Republicans mean when they say that they want to see spending cuts. Uh, We've heard some vocal Republicans call for cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Over the weekend, McCarthy insisted multiple times that those entitlement benefits will not be on the chopping block. You know, broadly, he has criticized Democrats for big spending, and he wants to assess where the government can become more efficient. Leading up to this meeting, Biden said to McCarthy, show me your budget and I'll show you mine. The White House says it's going to release a budget on March 9th and that it's, you know, essential McCarthy release a budget also to spell out how he intends to make those cuts. But again, I want to be really abundantly clear. The president has said he does not think any spending cuts in the budget ought to be linked to conversations about the debt limit. NPR's Asma Khalid, thanks a lot. Happy to do it. Inflation's coming down, but the watchdogs at the Federal Reserve aren't ready to declare victory just yet. Instead, the Fed is expected to order another boost in interest rates today. The central bank is trying to hold down inflation. Today's rate hike is expected to be smaller than the last six. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Scott, uh, there's been some encouraging inflation news lately. So what's the Fed looking at as it uh, makes its decision day? That's right. Most of the recent data has been encouraging. After hitting a four-decade high last summer, inflation has come down a good bit. It's still higher than the Fed would like, but it's moving in the right direction. Wage gains have also cooled off despite the tight job market, and that's reassuring to the Fed, uh, which worries that if wages go up too fast, that could put more upward pressure on prices. 
Economist Aaron Sojourner, who's with the Upjohn Institute for Employment Research, says this gradual slowdown in both price increases and wage increases is pretty much exactly what the Fed wants to see. If you were writing the description of what a good resolution to the crises we've been in looks like, this is what it looks like. But the Fed is not celebrating just yet. Officials say they are encouraged by what they're seeing, but Warren, we're not yet out of the inflationary woods. All right, so what does that mean for interest rates? The Fed is almost sure to raise rates by a quarter percentage point today. Uh, That would be the smallest increase since last March. After raising rates really aggressively last year, Fed policymakers are now shifting to more of a go-slow approach so they can take the temperature of the economy and see where they want to go from here. Now, financial markets are betting the Fed's going to pivot pretty soon and actually start cutting interest rates. That's one reason the stock markets enjoyed a big rally in recent weeks. But Fed officials have said repeatedly that's not going to happen. Here's Fed Governor Chris Waller speaking a couple weeks ago. The market has a very optimistic view that inflation is just going to melt away. We have a different view. Inflation is not going to just miraculously melt away. It's going to be a slower, harder slog to get inflation down, and therefore we have to keep rates higher for longer. Remember, just a couple of years ago, it was the Fed that thought inflation would melt away on its own once the pandemic eased and supply chains came untangled. Of course, those price hikes proved to be larger and longer lasting than the central bank expected. And Waller says they don't want to make that mistake and get head faked again. But is there a chance that they're making a a different mistake, the opposite mistake by being too conservative? Yes, and that's why the Fed is being cautious now and gradually downsizing these rate hikes. The challenge that Fed policymakers are wrestling with is that monetary policy works kind of like the shower in my creaky old house. You know, you turn the knobs, but the water temperature doesn't change right away. And if you're not careful, you can overcorrect, and then suddenly, whoo, you get hit with this icy blast. You know, the Fed has been turning the cold water tap on the economy with these rate hikes now for the better part of a year. And we're only now starting to feel the effects. Uh, Consumer spending is slowing. Job growth has cooled a little bit. Ideally, inflation will settle gently back down to the Fed's 2% target. Turn the knobs too far, though, and we wind up shivering through a painful recession. Cold showers are not bad, Scott. They wake me up. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thanks. You're welcome. some people than others? A study that included scholars and researchers from the Treasury Department finds black Americans are three times more likely to be audited. The authors include Evelyn Smith, a Ph.D. candidate in economics at the University of Michigan. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Steve. How conclusive was your evidence that black people are audited much more? Very conclusive, right? As you mentioned, we do find that black taxpayers are three to five times as likely to be audited as everyone else. It's a big finding. It's a troubling one. And furthermore, we find that these disparities are concentrated among low-income taxpayers, particularly among taxpayers who are claiming the earned income tax credit. Wow. There is so much to follow up on here, starting with how this would even happen. You would like to presume that auditors or even computer algorithms are just picking out people to audit based on the numbers. So how would race even enter into this? So you're uh, correct to point out um, you know, some of these mechanisms, we, 
I want to be clear, we don't find evidence that these disparities are driven by explicit bias on the part of IRS or its revenue agents. Rather, we find that they're driven by IRS's tendency to prioritize small-dollar, high-certainty cases and to focus on specific issues with refundable credits like EITC rather than the total dollar amount of underreporting. I guess we should explain the earned income tax credit for those who are not familiar. If you're working a job, you're making an income, but not a lot of income, the earned income tax credit uh, is money back to you that helps you pay the bills and take care of your family. So it is something that lower income people would get. And you're telling me that, that people who get that specific tax credit are audited more often? Yes, but an important part of uh, the paper is that we find that it's not just that EITC claimants are audited more often. It's that among EITC claimants, black EITC claimants are more likely to be audited than non-black EITC claimants. So it's not just socioeconomic, it's race. How would that happen? So what we find is that black taxpayers tend to make the types of mistakes that IRS historically has focused on. So an example would be uh, claiming dependents uh, so the IRS focuses very heavily on ensuring that dependents that are claimed for the purposes of EITC are, uh, meet the eligibility criteria. The IRS has a lot of data on dependents, but not necessarily more accurate data. So they focus very heavily on this issue, and black taxpayers can, tend to be caught up in that relative to non-black taxpayers. What did the IRS say when you presented them with these findings? So we have worked in collaboration with IRS and with Treasury. Um, so they are aware of the findings and, you know, their their offices have press releases on this topic uh, that I think you could refer to. But okay. uh, they are aware of the problem. And they're trying to look into it. But you name a fundamental issue here that I want you to explain. You said at the beginning that the IRS is more likely to target somebody who's not making very much money than perhaps a billionaire who might have billions of dollars in taxes owed. Why would that be? So IRS funding has been falling for at least the last decade. Um, you know, they haven't been able to hire new auditors. They haven't been able to replace auditors that retire. And the implication of that is that the share of audits they devote to higher income returns, more complex returns, has fallen over time. Um, but the share, the audit rate for EITC claimants has not fallen, and that is in part because these audits, or at least the types of EITC audits that IRS does, are pretty simple. They mostly involve sending a letter to a taxpayer and waiting for their response. In a few seconds, could the recent increase in IRS funding and staffing improve this problem in any way? It certainly could. Well, that settles that. Evelyn Smith, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. She's a PhD candidate in economics at the University of Michigan, one of the authors of a study that found that black Americans are three to five times more likely to be audited than other people. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, protesters in Myanmar are holding a so-called silent strike to mark two years since a military coup put a new government in place. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com slash NSBE. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, merchant, philanthropist, 
and slaver. Peter Faneuil donated Faneuil Hall to Boston in 1742, and now about 20 million people pass through the marketplace every year. We speak with a group trying to remove the name Faneuil along with what he stood for from this Boston landmark. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We still have some snow flurries coming down along the South Shore and Cape. That's supposed to move off sometime soon, but mostly cloudy skies and mostly cloudy skies will gradually clear today for a sunny day with a high near 32. Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 21. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 39. Right now, it's 22 degrees in Boston. That is the sound of the Boston-based band, The Acoustic Nomads. They'll be at WBUR City Space later this month as part of our Sound On concert series. The band brings together traditional sounds from across North and South America. Hear them play on February 16th. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. It's 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. Two years ago today, Myanmar's military seized power, deposing Aung San Suu Kyi's civilian-led government. The country has been in chaos ever since. Meanwhile, a million Rohingya people, minority Muslims, languish in refugee camps in neighboring Bangladesh. Most of them fled Myanmar after a 2017 crackdown by the military that many have labeled genocide. Here to talk about both, we're joined by NPR's Michael Sullivan in northern Thailand and NPR's Lauren Freyer in southern Bangladesh. Michael, let's start with you. Bring us up to date on what many are calling the civil war uh, now raging in Myanmar. Uh, What's been happening there? Yeah, it's a mess, eh? I mean, it's just getting worse. I mean, it's a very brutal conflict pitting Myanmar's military, not just against the ethnic minority militias it's been battling for decades, but against its own people, the ethnic Bamar or Burman majority, people who look like them, people who speak like them, people who worship like them in the country's heartland. There's also a million and a half newly displaced people within Myanmar. The economy has shrunk 20 percent and poverty levels are back to where they were a decade ago. I spoke to Richard Horsey. He's the senior Myanmar analyst for the International Crisis Group who doesn't see an end anytime soon. From one of the most hopeful periods in Myanmar's recent history has come one of the darkest times. And, you know, there's that real sense of a generation who, instead of being, you know, computer programmers and doctors and entrepreneurs, you know, helping to drive a new Myanmar, they're off in the jungle fighting or they're in, you know, forced into exile or they're dead. 
So that's a country of 50 million in chaos. And almost every analyst I've spoken with say this situation could drag on for years. And that's especially hard for people like the Muslim minority Rohingya and any idea they may have to be able to return to Myanmar in safety. Lauren, you've spent the last two days with Rohingya refugees at a camp inside Bangladesh. What's the mood there? Yeah, so everything that Michael has just told you about Myanmar, Rohingya here have been watching that with absolute horror. They thought they were fleeing their country very temporarily, and it's been more than five years for about a million Rohingya here in Bangladesh. Conditions here are tough. They've come to a poor country on the front lines of climate change. There are fires here in the dry season, floods in the rainy season, desperation. Last week, there was a shooting in this camp. So there's increasing lawlessness here, and people are trying to escape now on rickety boats across the Bay of Bengal, and they're drowning at sea by the hundreds. I want to introduce you to one Rohingya family I've met here. Hazara Khatun sifts rice in the bamboo shelter she shares with her husband and 12 children. Her big family used to be prosperous, running a business back home in Myanmar until 2017. And she says soldiers set fire to their house. The family fled by boat to Bangladesh, where they've been for five years. With ongoing conflict in Myanmar, it's impossible to even think of going back. But we can't live off charity in a refugee camp forever, Hazara says. One day, her 17-year-old son Mohammed had an idea. Smugglers have been ferrying more and more desperate Rohingya out of this camp and across the sea to Malaysia. He could go, get a job, send money back. I had a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach, Hazara recalls. But Rohingya can only go to school here through eighth grade, and Mohammed was idle. Other kids have gotten into drugs. So Hazara gave in, made her son promise to call home, and hugged him goodbye as he snuck out to meet a smuggler on the coast. And I retraced some of his steps. This is the Bay of Bengal in front of me. It's dark now, but mixed in with these fishing boats is exactly where those smugglers operate. I'm walking through the sand. We can't stop. Uh, we try, but can't stop. Didarul Alam Rashid runs an NGO that drops leaflets on this beach, urging Rohingya not to make these dangerous journeys. But in recent months, hundreds, if not thousands, have disappeared into these waters. How many boats do you think are leaving? One boat we can rescue, I think, Ten boat we can't. For every one boat you rescue, ten are yeah. missing. Yeah. Hazara's son, Mohammed, he never called home. My phone was silent, and meanwhile I heard about all these boats sinking, Hazara recalls. She was frantic. Mohammed was one of the lucky ones. A smuggler had confiscated his phone, but he was alive. He spent two and a half months at sea in a boat with fellow Rohingya. Eating one meal every two days, he explains. Now, sitting cross-legged on the cement floor with his mother, she caresses his ankle as he talks. He explains how they tried to make it to Malaysia but had to turn back. Smugglers dropped him off Bangladesh's coast, right where he started. He's even more desperate now. Other country, any opportunity for me, 
He's searching for any other way to avoid being in Myanmar, where he was persecuted, or in Bangladesh, where he risked his life to try to leave. Wow, so that sounds like a really, really desperate situation. Uh, What can the international community do then, Lauren and Michael? Well, this is one of the world's biggest refugee camps. And people here have been telling me that they feel like the world has forgotten about them, that they've moved on to new conflicts and new refugee crises in Ukraine and elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. And there doesn't seem to be much appetite in the region to intervene to solve the Myanmar crisis either. China doesn't seem to care as long as no one messes with their energy pipelines or businesses in country. And the rest of the neighbors don't seem to care much either. Western governments have imposed some sanctions against the military that so far haven't proven very effective. And with the war in Ukraine, there doesn't seem much bandwidth for, say, helping arm the opposition, for example, even though Myanmar's military is getting help from Russia. So honestly, it's the people of Myanmar who are going to sort this out, not the international community. That's NPR's Michael Sullivan in northern Thailand and NPR's Lauren Frere in southern Bangladesh. My thanks to you both. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, President Joe Biden has been touring bridges and tunnels this week as part of a victory lap for winning infrastructure funding. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wants to ban diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at what's thought to be the most progressive public college in the state. It's 729. Follow the news all day with WBUR. There are several ways to stay with us no matter where you go. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online and on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is scheduled to meet today with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to discuss raising the debt ceiling. NPR's Asma Khalid says House Republicans want spending cuts tied to any raising of the federal government's borrowing limit. It is unclear what House Republicans mean when they say that they want to see spending cuts. Uh, We've heard some vocal Republicans call for cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Uh, Over the weekend, McCarthy insisted multiple times that those entitlement benefits will not be on the chopping block. Vice President Harris will be among those in Memphis, Tennessee today for the funeral of Tyree Nichols. The 29-year-old died at a hospital a few days after a traffic stop and arrest earlier this month. Video released by police shows Nichols being tased and beaten by officers. NPR's Giles Snyder has more. The White House says Vice President Harris was invited to attend the funeral service and that she has spoken by phone with Tyree Nichols' mother and stepfather to express her condolences and offer support. Nichols is to be eulogized by the Reverend Al Sharpton. Five Memphis police officers have been fired and criminally charged, and the Shelby County District Attorney says more criminal charges could be forthcoming. 
Two other Memphis police officers have been suspended. Three first responders, including a pair of EMTs, were fired by the Memphis Fire Department. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's a new chair of the state Republican Party. The state committee narrowly chose Amy Carnavale of Marblehead last night. She'll take over for Jim Lyons. WBUR's Steve Brown reports many in the party blame Lyons for last year's drubbing at the polls. Carnavale is promising to be more inclusive in attracting party members than Lyons, who was more of a hardliner. She says she intends to use her 30 years of experience to benefit the party and Republican candidates running for office. So I think I'll take a little bit of a softer approach and try to reach those unenrolled voters. Um, Our enrollment is down under 9%, um, so clearly we need to reach out to unenrolled voters in order to get Republicans joining our party and um, elected to offices. One of Carnavali's first tasks will be to hire an executive director to run day-to-day operations, as well as get a handle on the party's shaky financial situation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Starting today, lobster and crab fishermen are banned from working in Massachusetts Bay for the next three months. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is putting the ban in place to protect endangered right whales. Right whales can get injured or die after getting caught in fishing gear. Recent data suggests there are less than 350 right whales left. Students in Chelsea Public Schools can now access mental health support via telehealth. The city is using pandemic relief money to fund the program. The school district's equity, diversity, and excellence officer, Aaron Jennings, says a lot of students have experienced mental distress in the pandemic. He says that's why the school district must provide support that is not bound to one location. They can access it when they need it. And so that's the luxury uh, and power of um, telehealth services for mental and behavioral health. For now, the program allows high school and middle school students to talk with licensed clinicians online. There are plans to expand it. In sports, the Bruins will try to snap their three-game losing streak tonight as they visit the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's the Bees' last game before the NHL All-Star break. Meantime, the Celtics are at home tonight to take on the Brooklyn Nets. There are still some lingering snow showers at this hour over the South Shore and Cape. Those are supposed to move off soon, and partly overcast skies will gradually clear to let in some sun. We'll have temperatures in the low 30s today. Those fall to the low 20s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and upper 30s. Some deep cold descends on Friday. It's 21 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. You don't have to listen long to President Biden before you hear that he's a train enthusiast. An Amtrak line runs from his home state of Delaware to Washington, And he wrote it all the time during his decades in the Senate. The president is now using that enthusiasm to promote one of the key goals of his presidency. Days before his State of the Union speech, he says he delivered a bipartisan infrastructure law. NPR's Scott Detrow reports. 
Hello, hello, hello. On Tuesday, Joe Biden was in his element, flanked by train cars and union workers praising other politicians. This is Chuck Schumer Day, pal. You got it done. All in a rail yard deep underneath Manhattan's west side. The day before, he'd been in Baltimore doing pretty much the same thing. I walked through that sucker, too. No, you think I'm joking. I'm not. Man, this has been... When you, when you commute on a highway every single day, and that was my highway, you get interested in when things are told and things are falling apart. All week, Biden is traveling up and down the northeast corridor he used to ride every day as a senator. He's taking a victory lap for steering federal funding to long-stalled major projects to replace century-old tunnels that slowed down the commute of him and millions of other train riders. In New York, Biden announced nearly $300 million dollars to begin the process of digging a new rail tunnel to replace the only one between New York and New Jersey. But it's going to be safer, more resilient, more reliable, and the biggest rail, the biggest rail line in the United States of America. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has been championing the project for decades. Now you can use whatever train metaphor you want, anyone you want, but get on the Joe Biden Express now because we are not stopping. Of course, the bill funding these projects was passed and signed back in 2021. And the projects won't be complete for years and years. But holding these victory laps now certainly has a political purpose for Biden. They show voters he got major things accomplished, even if the prospect for more big victories is dimmer with Republicans in charge of the House. Former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu pushes back on that view. Flying to the announcement aboard Air Force One, Landrieu, who Biden tasked with implementing the infrastructure law, says the government has been ramping up funding and will keep doing so all year. We have intense focus every day, all day. It's all about hurry the hell up and get it done from the president's perspective. So that's just the way we roll. And he argues voters don't need to be reminded about all the big projects it's funding. You know it's a myth that people don't know about these projects. If nobody knew about it, people would quit taking credit for all of them. But Biden has said several times lately that his administration needs to do more to sell its accomplishments to voters. And of course, he'll have a big platform to do that next week in a State of the Union address. He's been testing out lines in recent speeches, New York, Baltimore, Virginia, and you can hear clear themes emerging. The argument he's been breaking through government log jams. To have the best economy in the world, you have to have the best infrastructure in the world. People don't build factories where they're not rail stations, where they're not ports, where they're not access to highways. That he's prioritizing working class voters. Where in the hell is it written to say America can't lead the world again in manufacturing? Where is that written? And that even as he talks up bipartisan accomplishments, Biden is drawing clear contrast with Republicans. Look, you know, this ain't your father's Republican Party. This is a different breed of cat, as they say. Those themes all sound like those of a president running for a second term. Biden has not declared he's running yet, but he's certainly acting like it. Scott Detrow, NPR News, New York. After making controversial changes to K-12 through education in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is now looking to overhaul the state's colleges and universities. A new board he's appointed has begun reshaping policies at the state's liberal arts university, the New College in Sarasota. Yesterday, DeSantis appointees fired the university's president and began working to phase out programs promoting diversity, equity and inclusion. NPR's Greg Allen reports. 
Governor DeSantis dropped a bombshell last month when he appointed six new members to the new college's board of trustees. They include conservative educational activists who immediately issued pledges to overhaul a university known for its progressive educational policies. It's a school that's long suffered from inadequate state funding and a declining enrollment. But at a news conference yesterday, DeSantis said he believes the school's problems aren't financial, but ideological. The mission has been, I think, more into the DEI, CRT, the gender ideology, rather than what a liberal arts education should be. And so we're going to be able, I think, to, to, to offer some reforms. DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion programs, and CRT, critical race theory, are two phrases that come up a lot now in DeSantis' news conferences. He's required all public colleges and universities to report on how much they spend on DEI programs. DeSantis says the Republican-controlled legislature will soon bring him a bill outlawing them in Florida. The new college's new board met in Sarasota yesterday. One of the first items raised by new trustee Christopher Rufo was a motion to abolish DEI programs at the school. This goes against the founding mission of the college. It goes against the will of Florida voters and against the stated vision of the governor. Dominated by the new conservative members, the board voted to begin the process of rooting out DEI programs at the school. Also at the meeting was a large group of students, parents, and alumni concerned about the university's future. Elisa Mitchell said her son is a first-year student at the school. He and his classmates have done nothing to deserve the type of disruption that is currently happening to their education. Mitchell had a dig at the six new board members, all of one of whom are from out of state. As an actual Florida taxpayer, someone whose voice and vote counts just as much as anyone else's. I want to say that I think this school is an excellent use of my taxpayer money. The antagonistic and at times boisterous audience put the new board members on the defensive. While it's a small school with an enrollment around 700, DeSantis's pledge to make it into a conservative institution has brought a storm of outrage that has bothered some new board members. One of the new trustees, Matthew Spaulding, is a dean at Hillsdale College, a Christian school that some of DeSantis' administration say is a model for the new college. Yesterday, he responded to the criticism. Some have said this uh, recent appointments amount to a partisan takeover of the college. This is not correct. <laughs> the new college audience clearly wasn't convinced. DeSantis promises lawmakers will allocate $15 million in new funds for the new college this year and $10 million more in succeeding years. Most distressing to students, parents, and faculty yesterday was the board's vote to fire Patricia Oker, the school's popular president. She arrived at the meeting expecting the dismissal and apologized to those who wanted her to stay. But I'm going to say publicly, I do not believe that students are being indoctrinated at New College. Oker's replacement as interim president at the New College is another indication that change is coming. Board members voted to put someone close to DeSantis, his former education commissioner, Richard Corcoran, into the job. Greg Allen, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, in what some say is the end of an era, the last 747 jumbo jet has come off the assembly line. And in our next hour, a recently discovered green comet is passing by Earth for the first time in 50,000 years. Tonight may be your best chance to see it.
If you're on the South Shore or Cape, you may be seeing some snow flurries yet this morning. Those are supposed to taper off soon, and gradual clearing should mean sunny skies by this afternoon. Temperatures will top out only in the low 30s. Tonight's skies stay clear, and temperatures fall to a low around 20. Mostly sunny in upper 30s on Thursday, then the extreme cold hits on Friday. We'll have a high in the mid-20s during the day and fall as low as negative 6 that night. It's 21 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. Now in business news, many Massachusetts restaurant owners say they're struggling to make ends meet because of rising food costs and labor shortages. Starting today, the Charles River Regional Chamber is putting together a restaurant month to get more people to spend money locally. Jay Spencer is the chair of the group's dining collaborative. He says February is already a hard month for the restaurant industry. You have fewer selling days in order to make revenue. But more importantly, as the weather gets cold, people tend not to come out and you see less traffic. You know, everything is really concentrated around Valentine's Day. If there happens to be a blizzard around that Valentine's Day weekend, most of the restaurants don't do as well as what you think they may. Spencer says fear of a recession is also driving down traffic at local businesses. Norwood Bank and Foxborough Federal Savings are merging and rebranding as one local. The combined bank is retaining all its employees at branches in Norwood, Foxborough, Norfolk, and Plainville. Leaders say the merger allows the banks to combine resources to better serve customers. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Boeing company delivered its final 747 jumbo jet yesterday after a production run of more than five decades. Thousands of current and former Boeing workers gathered at the factory for this moment. Here's Tom Bonsi of Northwest News Network in Seattle, Washington. The guests of honor at the official send-off were the Incredibles. That's the name Boeing gave to the designers and builders who created the world's first jumbo jet, incredibly fast, in the late 1960s. More than three dozen of those old-timers returned to the jet factory Tuesday to see off the last 747 ever built. I love the airplane so much I would like for it to just continue. Desi Evans worked for 45 years at Boeing, including as a production manager on the first 747. To this day, he can conjure amazement that the beloved beast flies. The size of it and good grief and the tonnage, you know, when you're talking about between three to four hundred tons of aircraft, it's absolutely uncanny, isn't it? And yet it just floats, doesn't it? Absolutely floats. The shapely hunk of aluminum and wires is clearly more than just another airplane to the Incredibles. Greg Umpervich choked up looking at the last one off the line. Really sad. 
Lots of really wonderful memories, wonderful people, uh, tough stuff we had to go through and all that. A cargo carrier named Atlas Air took delivery of the last Boeing 747. It's a freighter. This is the 1,574th built since the iconic widebody with that distinctive hump first entered service with Pan Am in 1970. Aviation industry consultant and author of the book Air Wars, Scott Hamilton, says the 747 transformed international air travel by making it affordable to the middle class. It was a revolutionary airplane. It was the first jumbo jet, and it also allowed the airlines to dramatically reduce airfares of the day because they would carry so many people. Boeing's arch-rival Airbus surpassed Boeing in the early 2000s with a larger airliner, the A380, but that double-decker didn't achieve nearly the same commercial success and ended production years ago. Hamilton says the beginning of the end for the four-engine jumbo jets was the arrival of more fuel-efficient twin-engine widebodies. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Accompanied by a live band, the cavernous, now mostly empty 747 assembly hall filled up again for the final delivery ceremony Tuesday. The surprise guest was movie star John Travolta. And even when you understand the science behind flight. There's nothing like seeing a 747 take flight to remind you that there's also magic here. You may or may not know Travolta is a serious pilot too. In fact, certified on the 747. She's a great airplane and I'm looking forward to many years to come flying with her. Executives from Boeing and customers UPS and Atlas Air said it's the end of an era, but not the obituary for the jet. A dwindling number of passenger 747s can still be spotted at U.S. airports. Boeing and others expect the cargo version to keep flying for decades to come. And a couple of previously built 747s now undergoing modification will serve as the new Air Force One. For NPR News, I'm Tom Bonsi in Seattle. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston, and Tiziana Deering is here and ready to go to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. I think we should have just kept that swing music, right, underneath the whole thing. I know. We, we need it to get over the hump. Boogie. Exactly. It's great Wednesday pep up, yep. right? All right, so today is not just Wednesday. It's February 1st, mm-hmm. and here in the Commonwealth, that means a couple things for us. One is the beginning of Black History Month. The other is marking three years since the first case of covid Uh, was discovered in Massachusetts. Mm, So we are touching on both today on the show. We're beginning a month of conversations that center black voices, black perspectives, black history. We have three pastors coming in who are pushing Boston Mayor Michelle Wu very hard to change the name of Faneuil Hall Mm. because Peter Faneuil, who donated it to the city, um, was an enslaver. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to have that conversation. We've talked to Mayor Wu about it on air. Now we're going to talk to them. Yeah, that's interesting with the embrace down the street now. That's right. It's like kind of a clashing messages. Exactly. And then we're actually going to talk to the city of Boston archivist who is creating an archive about COVID and is stewarding one from 1918 and the flu pandemic then too. Riveting stuff. I haven't heard a thing about that. Yeah. I am fascinating. Faith, fascinated. Thank you. That- you're, well, you're also fascinating, Lisa, so that's all good. <laughs> that's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.50. 
I'm WBUR Weekend host Sharon Brody. Let's talk about connections and how great they are. Connections like the love you share with your best friend, your grandparents, your grown-up kid, the person your grown-up kid marries who reminds your grown-up kid to maybe respond to mama's texts. I mean, just to take it for instance. And alongside maintaining connections, another great life activity is subverting the dominant paradigm. So here's an idea. Maybe try a less conventional approach to which people you celebrate this Valentine's Day. You could surprise a loved one with some unexpected recognition. These are the people who make your heart sing. You can send them Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll help us tell stories that keep us all connected. It's really easy to do. Just go to WBUR.org. And thanks. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. All right, here's some pop music trivia for you. When producer Quincy Jones was making Michael Jackson's album Thriller, he happened to hear a song by the Japanese band Yellow Magic Orchestra. Jones played it for Jackson. The King of Pop liked it, wrote some new lyrics, and recorded it. Because of some legal disputes, Jackson's version never made it onto Thriller, though it was eventually released a year after Jackson's death. We tell you this because one of the co-founders of Yellow Magic Orchestra went on to become a widely respected artist across genres, from film scores to techno and hip-hop. Ryuichi Sakamoto is both an Oscar and Grammy-winning composer and a highly sought-after collaborator. Sakamoto recently released his 15th solo album. He made it while undergoing treatment for cancer. He wasn't able to record an interview, so instead we talked to some of the artists he's worked with about his career. My name is Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. I vividly recall the emotional experience I had when I first uh, listened to Ryuchi Sakamoto. I was in a car, traffic, traffic, else in Mexico City <laughs> with a friend of mine. And uh, we put a pirate Japanese cassette at that time. This was 1983. I heard the... Uh, some piano notes, and I felt as if the fingers were penetrating my brain and giving me a cranial cosmic massage. And it was a Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. he can create a huge emotion. Ryuichi Sakamoto studied classical music in Japan before making a name for himself in pop and electronic music. Hip-hop producer Flying Lotus says one of the first pieces that turned him on to Sakamoto is called Rain. It's still the beautiful and classical vibe. It, it still had this kind of hip-hop sensibility to it.
you want to talk about his history and, and what he's done in the past, there's a lot of stuff from like Thousand Knives. That was like some really early stuff, but it, you play it up against some today and it, you know, still sounds like the future. came to L.A. to work with me for a little bit. It was very magical having him here. He had this kind of childlike curiosity about all the potential for sounds that we could come up with. You know, he would look around and tap on surfaces to get some tones out of them or you know, tinker around with my ceiling fan above us so we could <laughs> hear what that sounds like. And, he found the beauty in all the little things. My name is Hildur Guðnadóttir and I am a composer and musician. He invited me to work with him on the soundtrack for The Revenant. It was very interesting to interpret how he was explaining his music. Like it wasn't so much with words, but it was with the gestures of his uh, wrists and of his eyelids and how he physically embodied his music. It's a film that is about loneliness, silence, and a space, you know, through this character that is left out in the middle of nowhere. Again, this is Alejandro González Iñárritu, director of The Revenant. So I wanted to have somebody who was able to understand silence. And I think the greatest musicians ever understand that silence is the source of music. And I think that's, that's Ryuchi. This is from Ryoichi Sakamoto's new album, 12, released a few weeks ago on his 71st birthday. He made it while undergoing treatment for cancer. I was very touched by this album because I can hear so much in these 12 tracks of this current state of him, this kind of sensibility, the fragileness, the weakness. My name is Carsten Nikolai. I'm recording under the name of Alvan Otto. And I met Luigi many years ago. Uh, probably we recorded eight albums together. It feels strong and fragile in the same moment. It has this incredible beauty of not being too complex. Ryuichi Sakamoto recorded this album in March of 2021, not long after an operation and extended stay in the hospital. In his statement, he writes, I had no intention of composing something. I just wanted to be showered in sound. I had a feeling it would have a small healing effect on my damaged body and soul. 
Sakamoto continues, from now on, until my body gives out, I'll probably continue to keep this kind of diary. Our story was produced by Elizabeth Blair, edited by Rose Friedman, and mixed by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative. This is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, Vice President Kamala Harris and other officials attend the funeral of Tyree Nichols, who died after being brutally beaten by Memphis police. It's Wednesday, February 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Congressional Black Caucus is calling for police reform legislation in response to Nichols' death. Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland spoke with CBS News. We can't necessarily legislate what's in people's hearts and minds, but we need justice and accountability and consequences, and we believe this is one way to make that happen. Also this hour, Massachusetts Republicans choose a new party chair who vows to make the state GOP more inclusive. We need to reach out to unenrolled voters in order to get Republicans elected to Congress, to uh, uh, positions up and down the board. Plus, we mark 20 years since seven astronauts were killed in the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. Skies clear for a sunny day today in the low 30s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Vice President Harris will be in Memphis, Tennessee today for the funeral of Tyree Nichols. He died a few days after a violent beating by Memphis police officers. From member station WKNO, Christopher Blank reports. The Biden administration joined a chorus of leaders calling for police reforms after the release of videos showing Nichols's beating by police. The president invited Nichols's mother and stepfather to the upcoming State of the Union address. Vice President Kamala Harris will be at the funeral, along with Biden officials Keisha Lance Bottoms and Mitch Landrieu, both former mayors of majority black cities like Memphis. A capacity crowd of 2,500 is expected at the funeral. The Reverend Al Sharpton will give the eulogy as other civil rights leaders call on Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which President Biden has pledged to sign. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Blank in Memphis. Two House committees will launch investigations of the Biden administration today. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports one will be on pandemic programs and the other on border policies. House Oversight Chairman James Comer's hearing will track spending on programs that sought to boost small businesses and stimulate the economy during the COVID pandemic. I believe that the committee needs to get back to its primary mission, and that is to root out waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement in the federal government. The House Judiciary Committee, led by Chair Jim Jordan, will look at how Biden administration policies are affecting the southwest border. Witnesses include local officials from Texas and Arizona and a parent of a 15-year-old who died of a fentanyl overdose. Democrats agree oversight is a key congressional responsibility, but argue that Republicans are selectively investigating Biden after ignoring concerns about Trump's policies. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. Some economists believe the Federal Reserve will be less aggressive when it announces its latest hike in interest rates this afternoon. 
Steve Beckner has more. After raising the federal funds rate three-quarters of a point four straight times, the Fed raised that key short-term rate a half point in December. With inflation lessening and the economy slowing, Fed watchers and some officials call for a quarter-point move. That would leave open the question of how much higher rates might go eventually. Steve Beckner reporting. The National Weather Service says a significant ice storm is blanketing much of the south. Ice storm warnings are up from near the southern Texas border to Tennessee. Dangerously icy conditions have caused hundreds of traffic accidents, and the ice is weighing down power lines, causing tens of thousands of outages. The site, poweroutage.us, says more than 180,000 customers are out of service in Texas alone. The tracking site, FlightAware, says well over 7,000 flights have already been delayed today. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Massachusetts's new education secretary wants to prioritize supporting student mental health and addressing the state's growing shortage of educators. WBOR's Carrie Young reports on the agenda for Secretary Patrick Tutwiler. Tutwiler revealed his priorities during the annual Condition of Education presentation by the Rennie Center, an education think tank. Tutwiler urged schools to continue providing students with consistent mental health supports. He also wants to make higher education more affordable for future educators so that more people want to become teachers. How can we shift the narrative to be an all home for the best and brightest? Somehow, some way, the narrative has to change. It has to improve. Tutwiler also challenged educators at the event to think about ways they can redesign high schools in a way that puts students' needs first, from offering vocational classes in the evenings to supporting students with special needs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. School is canceled again today in Woburn. Teachers there are continuing to strike. They're advocating for better pay for paraprofessionals and a raise to keep up with inflation. Teachers are striking in defiance of a court order telling them to return to the classroom. The mayor and school officials are calling for the union to be fined as a result. Massachusetts lawmakers are renewing their call to get federal and state officials to move quickly to secure funding to replace the bridges to Cape Cod. The federal government rejected a request for nearly $2 billion to replace the Bourne and Sagamore bridges. In a letter obtained by the Boston Globe, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, along with Congressman Bill Keating, told the feds they're disappointed in that move. An exhibit honoring baseball Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill opens today at the Worcester Public Library. O'Neill played in the Negro Leagues. He was the first black coach in Major League Baseball, and he was a huge advocate for honoring the Negro League's history. Tara Jankowski is with the library. She worked with the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City to organize the exhibit. She believes it tells an important story. I strongly believe sports history is American history and Black history is American history. Hopefully people will see how all of those intersect. The exhibit will be open at the main library branch in Salem Square until April. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. The Celtics host the Brooklyn Nets tonight, while the Bruins will wrap up a four-game road trip in Toronto tonight. They'll skate with the Leafs. Snow flurries over the Cape and South Shore are very, very slowly tapering off. It'll be cloudy to start today, but will eventually become mostly sunny. Temperatures will only get to the lower 30s, clear over night with a low around 20, mostly sunny tomorrow and in the upper 30s, blustery and extremely cold weather move in by Friday night. It's 22, 21 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Thousands of people are expected to attend the funeral of Tyree Nichols in Memphis this morning. The 29-year-old died after being beaten by police. Civil rights leader Al Sharpton is scheduled to deliver the eulogy, as he has for other people brutalized by police in other incidents. Last evening, Sharpton addressed the officers shown on video beating Nichols. You thought no one would care. Right. Well, tomorrow the vice president of the United States wow. is coming to his funeral. Yes. And we are coming because we're all Tyree now. That's right. And we're all going to stand up with this family. That's right. Lucas Fenton has been following the Nichols case. He's a reporter for the Commercial Appeal in Memphis. Lucas, I can pretty much guarantee it's going to be an emotional day. What do you expect to see at the funeral today? I expect that we're going to see uh, a range of emotions from from joy to humor to that really profound sadness that we've seen over the last few weeks uh, in Memphis. I think that that'll probably be seen throughout the the chapel with family members, high-ranking officials, uh, and also friends and activists and community leaders as well. Now, we just heard from uh, Al Sharpton a minute ago. You spoke with the Reverend uh, Sharpton about his eulogy. What did he tell you? He really focused on the power of someone who's unfamiliar with an individual eulogizing that person and how that can really give the speaker power to really figure out what that, that person's death can mean for the future, not just for the family, but also for police reform at a at a state, local, and national level. Uh, and he focused on how there really needs to be some strong national reforms in order for police reform to stick. You also uh, spoke to Reverend Dr. J. Lawrence Turner, the senior pastor at the church. Uh, what did he say about how the community is uh, feeling right now? He said that there's a lot, a very profound sense that everyone is mourning uh, after really getting to know who Tyree Nichols was over the past few weeks, and then beyond that, seeing and reading and finding out what what happened to him in, in those last few minutes after the traffic stop, and that the community really feels like they've lost a very valuable and a very bright young man. How does the killing of Tyree Nichols fit into the history of the city of Memphis? Uh, I think that there's a a profound sense of trying to use and embrace that history of the 60s and early 70s civil rights era in Memphis and repurpose it for 
the future. I mean, this is where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came for the sanitation strike, and it's also where he gave that last speech, and it's also where he took his last breath. Throughout the city, you'll see at these protests still the I'm a man sign from the sanitation strike, and these are people who are kind of embracing that really powerful message from the past and repurposing it and placing Tyree Nichols's face from the hospital bed where he's badly bruised, bleeding, uh, intubated, and using that for this present movement and trying to, you know, embrace what came before while also focusing on what comes next. Lucas Finton of the Commercial Appeal in Memphis. Lucas, thanks. Thank you so much. The video of Tyree Nichols being punched and kicked by policemen as he lay on the ground, a beating that would lead to his death, has triggered yet another push for legislation in Congress to rein in police misconduct. A bill named after another black man who was killed by police as it was filmed, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, passed the House but failed in the Senate two years ago. Republicans and Democrats couldn't agree. So is anything different today? I asked Congressional Black Caucus with Marilyn Strickland, a Democrat from Washington, what's possible in a deeply polarized Congress. The brutal beating of Tyree Nichols shows that we desperately need police reform. In the 116th Congress that predates me, the 117th that I entered last year, and moving forward in the 118th, you know, we want to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And the House has passed it twice. Now, the Democrats are in the minority this time, So we're looking to the Senate to show some leadership and see what can be done, because when we passed it before, it didn't get through the Senate. For this to pass, it needs to be bipartisan. You need Republican buy-in. Is that possible? You know, I think it is possible. What we're proposing with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is nothing extraordinary. It's meaningful reform that's going to end racial and religious profiling. We're going to address chokeholds and no-knock warrants. We want to improve transparency and collect data on police misconduct and have a national database and standard. And so at the end of the day, this is about safer communities and to be honest with you, better policing. Mm. If that piece of legislation was currently law, would this have stopped what we saw? Because ultimately the police report that described what happened to Tyree Nichols was very different than the video we saw. It described a violent man instead of what we saw, a man being beaten. And we didn't see one strike from him. Well, you know, realistically, you know, we cannot legislate what is in someone's heart and what's in someone's mind. But we can Mm -hmm. send a message to law enforcement that excessive use of force and abuse of power is something that we will not tolerate. And there will be consequences if you engage in that behavior. On Sunday, Senator Lindsey Graham floated a compromise on qualified immunity, which protects law enforcement, individual officers from civil lawsuits. And that had been a major sticking point between Republicans and Democrats in previous talks on police reform. Does his proposed compromise to have police departments, not individual officers held liable, open a path to bipartisan legislation on police reform? Well, I would say this, because the Democrats are in the minority now, and we depend so much on the Senate, I think our approach has to be what is possible given the makeup of our legislative body right now in both chambers. At the end of the day, we want this behavior to stop. That's what we want. We want 
our communities to be safe and we want to feel safe when we interact with law enforcement. A lot of young people who are black and brown are afraid of the police when in theory we should be able to turn to them when we're afraid when something is happening. And so I know a lot of it is changing the culture of policing. We know that disproportionately African-Americans and black and brown people are the ones who typically get pulled over and have interactions with police officers. Yeah. And so when we talk about what we want, we also want to see fairness across the board. And, you know, driving while black, walking while black, sleeping while black in your home should not be a death sentence. Is anything different about the conversations with your Republican colleagues this time around? I mean, you've been in these conversations before and ultimately they didn't lead to the passing of legislation. I think the question becomes, you know, how many more times are we going to watch this happen and do nothing? And I think that's the question I have for my Republican colleagues. And I'm hopeful that, you know, if this starts in the Senate, we have buy-in from Senate Republicans, we bring this to the House, that there are enough good people on the other side of the aisle who will say this is something that's good. Police reform and safe communities are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they make communities more safe. And I think it's also getting past this idea that reform is anti-police. This false narrative that Democrats are anti-police is simply not true. We support police officers. We want safe communities. And we know that public safety is a large continuum that starts with economic opportunity, good schools, giving people a sense of hope so that they don't even have contact with the justice system. But if they do, we want it to be fair, we want it to be just, and when people abuse their power and use excessive force that results in tragedy, people must be held accountable. Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. One morning, a morning just like this one, actually, Bryce Boland was studying the sky. I mean, it's his job, after all. He is one of the astronomers who discovered something new. We made a detection in the morning during the morning twilight, just before the sun rises, of an object that appeared to be an asteroid. But as time went on, it became apparent that it was a uh, comet and coming from a very far, very distant place in the solar system. A comet is a giant rock that hurtles through space. It differs from an asteroid because it gives off what seems like a tail, shedding dust and ice that reflect the light of the sun. Boland says nobody had ever recorded this comet before. Astronomers think it only passes by Earth every 50,000 years. So the last time it passed, nobody would have had a telescope or a piece of paper to take a note. It's nicknamed the Green Comet because of its verdant glow. And you may be able to see it while it's in the neighborhood-ish. I mean, it's getting to within 26 million miles from Earth. It's a frozen leftover from the early solar system. Mike Kelly is an astronomer at the University of Maryland. It's made out of ices and dust, and they formed with the planets and with the early sun. They're time capsules from that period of time, which is four and a half billion years ago. So they give us a great opportunity to understand what our solar system was made out of. Now, the best way to see the comet will be to get away from the city lights and look north. Kelly recommends using binoculars or a telescope, although you may be able to see it with the naked eye. It's one thing to see a picture on the internet, but to see it for yourself, however impressive or unimpressive it may be, it's still, it's a it's its own experience. If you see it, you will glimpse something that has not come this close to Earth since the Stone Age. I got a kid. 
asking to go out of town and see it. They heard about this ancient rock through a post on Instagram, which also was not available the last time it passed. This afternoon on All Things Considered, anti-abortion rights groups filed a lawsuit targeting an abortion drug. How could that reshape access to abortion? You can stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or just listen to us on the radio. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, 20 years ago today, seven astronauts died in the Columbia disaster. A NASA administrator talks about how their deaths changed the agency. And the FDA is appointing an official to oversee food safety and nutrition after a national baby formula shortage crisis and outbreaks of foodborne illnesses. It's 819. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. See all our choices and send yours today to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org. The Memphis Police Department has disbanded its specialized Scorpion unit after the death of Tyree Nichols. Similar units have existed in other cities for decades. They have more authority, elite status, and a vague mandate, which departments say is an effective formula for crime fighting. Critics call it the recipe for abuse. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Right now at WBOR.org, learn how local healthcare companies are dealing with growing threats of violence against their employees. Check out how the first day of legalized sports betting went yesterday. And the stage at Suffolk Downs in East Boston has put out its lineup for its June debut. Find out who's going to be there by visiting WBOR.org on your computer or on your phone. Mostly cloudy skies gradually clear today for a sunny day with a high near 32. Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 21. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 39. Temperatures drop and wind chills get dangerously low on Friday. It's 22 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. From Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. 20 years ago today, silence told NASA that something was very wrong. As heard in a 2003 NPR report, Mission Control called out to the shuttle Columbia and heard nothing back. Columbia, Houston, comm check. Columbia, Houston, UHF, comm check. The shuttle was returning back to Florida when it came apart over Texas. What looked like falling stars blazed across a blue sky. Those lost were Rick Husband, Willie McCool, Michael Anderson, Kalpana Chala, Dave Brown, Laura Clark, and Elon Ramon. 
Pam Melroy was part of the shuttle program then, an astronaut who also helped to lead one part of the Columbia investigation. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Steve. What was that moment like for you? Well, it was a very difficult moment for all of us. Personally, I was in Florida getting ready to greet the crew and help them off the shuttle. And of course, uh, the space shuttle is uh, coming back through the Earth's atmosphere uh, at Mach 25. And so uh, it's going to arrive within a second of when it's predicted. And so it was uh, a moment where we all looked around and said, how could this be happening? The space shuttle isn't here. And, um, and that's when we realized it wasn't coming back. This must be one of those things where you know uh, death is possible, you know tragedy is possible, and yet you don't really expect it at all. No, I would say we, we really didn't. I certainly didn't. It took me uh, a little bit of time to process it. Um, fortunately, we had some, some people, uh, Bob Cabana, who's the uh, head of the flight operations, had been through Challenger and he knew right away. And he was able to direct us quickly to react and do the things that we'd been trained to do for a mishap. Um, but it was it was very shocking, and I think it was it was a very tragic time for the agency. I want people to know that you went up into space before this disaster, and also went back on the shuttle Discovery after in two thousand seven. How much was Columbia on your mind when you went back? You know, it was very much on my mind because I had uh, participated in the part of the investigation that looked at, you know, the crew training, the crew equipment, the crew procedures, and all the things that we could learn uh, for future survivability, you know, I felt very strongly as the commander of that mission that I was very focused on doing everything in my power to use that learning to protect the crew in case of a mishap. And uh, I think all commanders feel that way, um, but I know it was it was very much on my mind throughout the whole mission to use that knowledge uh, and ensure that the crew was as safe as possible. Fortunately, I didn't have to. Because you're thinking not only of your own safety, but the safety of everyone on board as the commander, I suppose. That's right. How did this disaster change NASA, if at all? Oh, I, I think it had a substantial impact. It's 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 very interesting if you look at the history of the mishaps at NASA, the Apollo 1, uh, the Challenger and the Columbia mishaps, you know, we had a, a day of remembrance, which we do once a year to honor uh, the legacy of all those crews and also remember the lessons that we learned. And I think the agency evolved more with each mishap, more transparent. Uh, I think in each case, we embraced the attitude that, hey, we're going to learn everything that we can from this. If people died for this knowledge, we're, we're going to learn from it. And I think that was, you know, the first step. But beyond that, the key lesson uh, that we learned from Columbia was around schedule pressure, but also around organizational silence, making sure that voices are heard uh, inside the agency that have concerns about safety and making sure that those concerns get elevated to the right decision makers. Um, in the few seconds that we have left, do you think that knowledge that people died for will benefit NASA and this country as NASA works to send astronauts back to the moon? Absolutely. We are very proud of the lessons that we've learned and we're incorporating them now. NASA Deputy Administrator Pam Melroy, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. 
The head of the Food and Drug Administration has announced a major restructuring of the agency's Food Safety and Nutrition Division. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports the changes come around concerns that the agency did not act swiftly or effectively enough to prevent a national shortage of baby formula last year. One year ago, the baby formula manufacturer Abbott issued a voluntary recall. There were reports of bacterial contamination in formula made at a facility in Sturgis, Michigan. As parents searched for supplies of formula, scrutiny over the Food and Drug Administration's handling of the crisis intensified. An independent review of the agency pointed to leadership problems. Staff operated in silos within the agency and did not share information. Overlapping roles and the lack of a single leader created a sense of constant turmoil, a report concluded. Now, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf has announced a restructuring aimed at fixing the problems. We really believe that with the reorganization, the system of safety and inspections will be much more preemptive. Catching problems earlier to better protect consumers and the food supply. A new deputy commissioner will be hired to oversee regulatory actions and strategy and improve efficiency. But there's mixed reaction from health and food groups. The American Heart Association's chief executive applauds the creation of a new Center for Excellence in Nutrition, which is part of the reorganization. But Jerry Mand, an adjunct professor at the Harvard School of Public Health and CEO of Nourish Science, says the changes don't go far enough. I'm disappointed. FDA was created to ensure food doesn't make us sick acutely or chronically. And given that a leading cause of death in the U.S. is diet-related heart disease, Mand argues the agency needs to do more. Alice Aubrey, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, American historian Carter G. Woodson is credited with founding Black History Month. We hear from his black and white descendants. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Funeral services are being held today in Memphis, Tennessee for Tyree Nichols. The 29-year-old died earlier this month, a few days after a traffic stop and arrest. Video released by police shows Nichols being tased and beaten by officers. 
Five of those officers have since been fired and face charges that include second-degree murder. Two other officers have been suspended. At a church rally in Memphis yesterday, Justice for Tyree! Justice for Tyree! Justice for Tyree! Vice President Harris will be among those at Nichols' funeral today. The Federal Reserve is expected to announce another hike in interest rates this afternoon as part of the Fed's ongoing effort to bring down inflation in the U.S. economy. NPR's David Gurup says it would be the Fed's eighth rate hike in less than a year. There have been signs in recent data that high inflation is starting to ease, and that gives Federal Reserve policymakers the opportunity to be a little less aggressive. Yes, to raise rates again, but this time by a quarter point. That's what's anticipated. So what will matter more to Wall Street is what Fed Chair Jerome Powell says after the Fed announces its decision about its strategy going forward. Inflation in much of Europe eased a bit in January. The EU says year-over-year consumer prices were up 8.5% last month. This is NPR News. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in the Philippines, where he's reportedly trying to secure expanded U.S. access to that country's military bases. Reporter Ashley Westerman spoke to a military historian in Manila. Jose Antonio Custodio says Secretary Austin's visit is an indicator that relations between the U.S. and the Philippines are improving. Following the cancellation of the long-standing visiting forces agreement between the two under the former administration of President Rodrigo Duterte. Now, uh, both countries, or the U.S. to be precise, remains hopeful that the Philippines will do its share in the mutual defense in the Asia-Pacific region. A senior Philippines official told reporters that the U.S. is pushing for an additional four or five military bases for the U.S. as a deterrent for any moves by China against Taiwan and for the Philippines heightened defense for its territorial claims in the South China Sea. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman in Manila. There are no immediate reports of deaths or injuries in the Philippines after a strong earthquake struck there earlier today. The U.S. Geological Survey says the quake had a magnitude of six and was centered in the country's southeast. An avalanche at a ski resort in Indian-controlled Kashmir has left two skiers dead. About 20 others had to be rescued. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Republican Party is under new leadership. Last night, party members elected Amy Carnevale of Marblehead as their new chair. She'll take over for embattled chair Jim Lyons. Many in the party blame him for its steep losses during the November election and financial issues. Carnevale is promising to be more inclusive in attracting new members to the party. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency wants a federal appeals court to dismiss a challenge by two environmental groups to its cleanup plan for the Housatonic River. Nancy Cohen reports that river was contaminated for decades by a former General Electric plant in Pittsfield. The appeal argues EPA should send all PCB-contaminated waste to a licensed off-site facility rather than in a disposal site next to the river. EPA lawyers argue the environmental groups HEAL and HRI haven't shown they have legal standing to challenge the cleanup permit. Tim Gray of HRI says he's been injured because he has PCBs on his property in Lee on the river that he believes came from the former GE plant. We believe this is just another ploy to come after us 
on standing because they have nothing else. The EPA said it can't comment on ongoing litigation. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. The Boston branch of a national nonprofit that supports single mothers and their children is celebrating its new home today in the South End. Jeremiah Program opened its Boston location in 2016. It partners with local colleges and tutoring programs to help women who want to go back to school. Allison Carter Marlowe is the program's Boston executive director. She says she's excited for its sleek new space. It's comfortable and warm, but it also just has such a professional air to it that we plan to make moms feel very welcome and very special. This is their building or their space more so than our partners or our donors and even our staff. She says she also wants to create a children's area in the new space. It's 8.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Former New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady is retiring again. Brady posted a video to social media about 20 minutes ago making the announcement saying he's retiring for good. I won't be long-winded. I think you only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year. So uh, really thank you guys so much to every single one of you for supporting me, my family, my friends, my teammates, my competitors. Uh, I could go on forever. There's too many. Um, thank you guys for allowing me to live my absolute dream. I wouldn't change a thing. Love you all. Brady won six Super Bowl titles in his 17 seasons with the Pats. He then won another three in his three seasons. He then won another in his three seasons with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Apologies. The Bruins will try to put an end to their three-game losing streak tonight. They're visiting the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Celtics are at home tonight to play the Brooklyn Nets. Boston won when the teams met three weeks ago. There are some lingering snow showers at this hour over the South Shore and Cape. They've been lingering for a while, but they're supposed to move off soon. Then partly overcast skies will gradually clear to let in some sun. We'll have temperatures in the low 30s. Those fall to the low 20s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and upper 30s. Then the deep cold descends on Friday. It's 22 degrees in Boston at 837. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. It's Black History Month, and the man who laid the foundations of this celebration is Carter G. Woodson. He founded Black History Week in 1926. It became a full month in the 1970s. NPR's Sonia Dirks has this story about some of Woodson's descendants and how they've come together in an unexpected way. 
When he was in middle school, Brett Woodson Bailey's mom sat him down. Because my mom made a big deal about it, like when she told me, she was like, you are the descendant of a very famous historical figure. His great-great-great-uncle was Carter G. Woodson. Obviously, I was like, who the heck is that? I've never met that man. As he got older, Brett came to understand he was descended from the father of black history. I'm not exactly, like, carrying down his, his legacy too much. Well, I guess I kind of am by still being here because, you know, he was a fighter fighting for civil rights. There's a saying that some black folks have. We are our ancestors' wildest dreams because surviving is no small thing. Brett also survived a rare and aggressive childhood cancer. Now, he's a sophomore at UC Santa Cruz. I want to be a wildlife biologist. He's also a track star who loves to run. It's like a freeing feeling. And right now, he's sitting at a picnic table. He's pretty good at, at picking up, so let's see. I know he's a pretty busy guy. Calling his cousin, who also plays a central role in this story. Oh, dang, right there. Hey. Craig Woodson has known Brett since he was born. He's a distant cousin, nearly six decades older. And there's another thing. Maybe in the back of my head, I thought it was kind of weird that he was white. I'm like, hmm, I don't have any other white cousins. How'd he get a white cousin? That happened long before Brett was born. It was one of those moments when the past crashes into the present and changes everything. Craig grew up proud he could trace his relatives all the way back to the beginnings of America. We knew the story. Ancestors came from Jamestown. But that story changed in 1984 when... I bought a stamp. A postage stamp that honored Carter G. Woodson. Craig wanted to know why they shared a last name, and that's when he discovered... We enslaved people uh, way back at Jamestown at the beginning of enslavement in this country. His family purchased six of the first 20 Africans who were brought to America in 1619 on a ship called the White Lion. We had this horrible, horrible legacy. Craig's an ethnomusicologist, and his specific field of study is African drumming. He knew a lot of black people, and he was terrified to tell them what he'd found out. I just didn't want to be associated with slavery, and I didn't want to face that. And that's what ultimately brought me to say, I've got to face it. He finally confided in a close friend of his, a black woman named Betty Cox. The tape sounds a little different here because I want to play you the first time Craig told me this part of the story, which was over Zoom. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Poof. I told her the story. <laughs> and without batting an eye, <laughs> in her beautiful way, she said, wow, that's interesting. My best friend is Aileen Woodson. <laughs> And her husband's Edgar. <laughs> He's related to Carter G. You want to meet him? <laughs> Just like boom, boom, boom. So that was it. Within 15 minutes or so of me telling her, I'm standing there talking to Edgar. Edgar Woodson is Brett's grandfather. He's now passed. By the time Brett was born, they were all like family. Craig visited Brett in the hospital when he was sick. He taught him how to play drums. He taught him how to drive. Brett's parents are divorced. His mom was sick a lot. And Craig was there for them. I'm seeing someone who, like, I know for a fact had ancestors who were slave owners and nothing else. Like, it's just, like, made it very clear that, like, your ancestors don't define you. At the same time, Brett is grappling with how the past lives on in the present, even in small ways, like when white people cross the street when he walks by. It could just be because I stand out and, like, it's rare to see, like, a black person on campus. But even that, Brett knows, is a legacy of systemic racism, that he's one of the few black students here. I have a really philosophical question to ask you. Okay. What does it mean to heal the past? 
to heal the past. Wow, that's like a. <laughs> how do how, how do you start with a question like that? To heal the past. It's exactly the question Craig's been trying to answer since the day he first saw that postage stamp. It's a question that led him to Brett's grandfather, Edgar, and a decade later, it led him to apologize publicly at a reconciliation ceremony at a black church in Los Angeles. He roped in his whole white family, including his sister-in-law, Joan Woodson. She recalls at first, some in the family didn't want to do it. Okay, are we going to be going there and then everybody's going to be yelling and screaming us as, at white people, as white people? <laughs> And, and they said, we don't know whether we want to do that. But they showed up, White Woodsons and Black Woodsons, including Brett's mom, Adele. There's video from that day. Here's Craig. I apologize on behalf of my ancestors for the Holocaust that has caused to your family and your ancestors. And I ask for your forgiveness. Craig steps down off the dais and walks down the aisle towards Edgar. They embrace. the white descendant of one of the first enslavers in America, and the black descendant of the man who helped establish the study of black history. Craig has befriended other black Woodsons too. He's even done DNA tests. I was shocked initially. Michelle Evans Oliver is one of the people he matched with. It's a small genetic match, but significant. Oliver says when they met, they were even wearing the same kind of glasses. We kind of looked alike to me and I'm like, hey, yep, yeah, this might be a possibility here. She knows her genetic connection to Craig is likely the result of sexual violence. But Oliver says she appreciates Craig's apology. He did what he felt like he needed to do at that time. And, 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 and if that is what he could do, great, thank you. But what about the other Craig Woodsons of the world? You know, where, where is that? Oliver points out that slavery's aftershocks are still shaping and shaking us. Is the apology of one man enough to heal history? Craig doesn't think so. You can't really apologize for something so horrible. He says looking back, he knows the apology was more for him than it was for the Blackwood sins. What you can do is show up. The closest answer he's found to healing the past is to show up in the present. For Brett, for his mom. I asked Brett if Craig showing up was a kind of reparations, but he says it's not like that. Craig's just family. I guess in a way, it depends on your perspective on it. It could be kind of reparations, whether it's like intentional or unintentional. Making their relationship only about repairing the past takes away from the very real connection they've built in this moment. Brett says he doesn't want money or anything like that from Craig. I asked Craig about money. After all, his family profited off the violently forced labor of Brett's ancestors. Craig told me he had just put Brett in his will. He said it was something that should have happened a long time ago. Sunday Dirks, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, Massachusetts Republicans last night unseated their party chair and elected a replacement who may lead the state GOP in a new direction. WBWAR's Steve Brown reports. 
the remaining snow flurries falling this morning are mostly coming down on the Cape. They're supposed to taper off soon, and gradual clearing this morning should mean sunny skies by this afternoon. Temperatures will top out only in the low 30s. Tonight, skies stay clear, and temperatures fall to a low around 20. Mostly sunny and upper 30s on Thursday. It's 22 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Bed Bath & Beyond says it will close five more locations in Massachusetts as it faces bankruptcy. Those include locations in Burlington and Dedham. The company also plans to close stores under its Bye Bye Baby brand, although it is unclear whether any New England locations will be affected. Providence-based Citizens Bank will become the first-ever sponsor of House of Blues Boston. The venue near Fenway Park will formally be called Citizens House of Blues under the deal. The financial terms of the sponsorship were not disclosed. It's 846. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's been a change at the top of the Massachusetts Republican Party. The state GOP last night voted to oust Jim Lyons as its chairman. He's served in that role for the last four years. The party elected state committee member Amy Carnevale to replace him. WBMR's Steve Brown was at last night's meeting in Marlboro and joins us now. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Rupa. Before we get to the news, can you recap the party infighting that led up to last night's vote? Yeah. After last November's election losses, and there were lots of them, if you remember, uh, many Republicans put the blame squarely on Jim Lyons. Uh, They questioned his putting the party's limited resources into the governor's race, which most political observers knew was a very long shot. Lyons's critics thought he should have put more effort into down-ballot races, thinking some of those contests were competitive and could have been won by Republicans. There have also been questions about party finances. Fundraising has been abysmal. The party's treasurer has said that the state GOP only has $35,000 in the bank. So there was a lot of tension. I'd say. And it all came to a head last night. Was it pretty raucous? Uh, Surprisingly, no. Uh, No fireworks to speak of. As a matter of fact, the vice chairman who was running the meeting complimented the members for their civility. Uh, And the final vote was close. Amy Carnevale got 37 votes to Jim Lyon's 34 votes. Can you tell us a little bit about Amy Carnevale and what does she intend to get done as the leader of this party? Yeah, she's a longtime state committee woman from Marblehead who works as a Washington lobbyist. Now, like Lyons, she has supported former President Donald Trump. Uh, As a matter of fact, she was a delegate for Trump representing Massachusetts at the national conventions. After winning the vote last night, she said the party needs a new strategy to get back of trying to win elections and get Republicans elected to all kinds of offices. Clearly the vote was a signal that our party is going to take a different uh, track moving ahead. Um, And I'm taking that as a signal that uh, we also need to reach out to unenrolled voters in order to get Republicans elected to Congress, to uh, uh, positions up and down the board. Okay, that sounds like maybe she's thinking about taking a more moderate direction. Is this a win for the Charlie Baker wing of the party? I wouldn't say she's going to take the party in a more moderate direction, although that remains to be seen. Uh, Remember, she has been a supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, But I think she's more of a pragmatist than uh, Jim Lyons was. Uh, She knows that the party can't afford to alienate the Charlie Baker wing. Uh, Lyons battled Baker constantly, 
called uh, the former governor a Republican in name only. Uh, but there are a lot of people in Massachusetts who are in line with Charlie Baker. And I think Carnevale realizes that she has to include them in the future of the party for it to be viable. And how are you hearing state GOP officials react to this change? Uh, those I spoke with last night seemed encouraged. A longtime party official and National Republican Committeeman Ron Kaufman told me Carnevale represents a new age of conservative. She's absolutely a conservative person, but she's not ironclastic. She represents the kind of personality that I think the party's going to turn to more and more and more. Ones who are certainly fiscally conservative, socially in the middle, uh, and moderate in tolerance. Kaufman said he thinks that the state's party's troubles are now in the rearview mirror. Amy Carnevale can lead them to success. Okay, but what about the party's financial problems? Does Carnevale have a solution for that? She says she's going to review the party's finances and determine what the party may owe. Uh, she says she's received commitments from folks who have donated to the party in the past but have held back while Lyons was at the helm. Uh, she plans to reach out to those donors and ask them for their help moving the party forward. WPMOR's Steve Brown, thanks so much for being there last night and being here this morning. We appreciate it. You're quite welcome. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report pays tribute to the last queen of the skies, otherwise known as the Boeing 747 jumbo jet. It's 8.51. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When the Japanese pufferfish wants to find a mate, it sets out to impress with all it has. Its fins and a sandy ocean floor. And over several days and nights without sleep, it carves the most incredible, symmetrical sculpture in the sand, a huge circular array of ridges, troughs, peaks and valleys, decorated with perfectly placed shells scavenged from the seabed. It's beautiful, not just to a pufferfish, but to our eyes too. And why does it create this thing of beauty? It just knows it's what it needs to do for love. Fortunately, it's so much easier for you to create something beautiful. Send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR, and in doing so, you'll create stories that enrich and inspire all of us. Visit WBUR.org to get started. Well, computer chips are now much easier to find. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. The Name Your Price tool provides a range of coverage options. Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm David Brancaccio. You'll remember the shortage of microprocessors, all the hard-to-find computer chips. There's now a glut of silicon, and chip makers are cutting costs and making downbeat predictions about profits in the month ahead. The latest company is AMD. It expects a sales decline of 10% this quarter. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Yeah, sales decline as well as profit margins declining. Believe it or not, David, that's good news from AMD. That's what counts as good news in the chips business. Its sales were actually up in the last quarter of 22. Now it expects a downturn. And it's not alone. Intel last week reported a 32% sales decline for the fourth quarter. It expects to lose money this quarter. And the list goes on. Samsung says memory chip sales fell 8% in its previous quarter. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, that's the biggest contract chip manufacturer out there, 
expect sales to be down 5% this quarter. And chip profits, part of that, but uh, how does that fit into the health of the larger tech industry? Well, it's definitely got a cold. Uh, Shipments are down for PCs, smartphones, memory chip prices have fallen by double-digit percentages. But there's also a buildup of inventory because there was such a ramp up to get desperately needed chips out there into the economy. Now there's worries about possible recession and businesses are cutting costs, even in things like data centers, which had maintained growth. And chip makers are cutting back production to burn through a glut of inventory. And it's a sudden and dramatic shift in the memory chip market. For example, South Korean manufacturer SK Hynix called it an unprecedented deterioration in demand. And some companies say they expect the slowdown to last at least through mid-year. Mid-year. Nova, thank you. On this 1st of February, we can tell you that the stock market had a strong January with the NASDAQ going up 10.7%, the biggest jump in any January in more than two decades. Some of this is the growing sense that the big jumps in interest rates to fight inflation are now behind us. Even this morning, a private survey finds the pace of hiring slowed a lot in January to just 106,000 more people on payrolls, according to ADP. That's a drop of 58% in one month. The official jobs report comes out on Friday. The Federal Reserve is expected to announce a small increase of one quarter of one percentage point later today. After the S&P went up one and a half percent yesterday, S&P futures are down a quarter percent as I speak. Chat GPT, the artificial intelligence technique that yields spookily plausible results, has been getting much attention. It can write business letters, college essays, a lot more. But it's also cheating on a stick, and that's why 22-year-old Princeton University student Edward Tien has created GPT-0, a tool that helps detect whether text has been generated by a computer or a human. He spoke with our editorial partners at the BBC about how it works. So we use two main indicators in GPT-0 right now. One is called perplexity, which is more of a fingerprint of the text. It's almost like asking the AI itself how likely it is to generate a piece of text. And that's more of like the numeric indicator. And then there's burstiness, which is more of a big picture indicator in terms of with human writing, humans have creativity. We have sudden bursts in creativity because of our short-term memory. And these machines are writing is more constant over time. Uh, So that's sort of the difference there. And there's a lot of research to be done in improving and we're adding like a host of other variables uh, to GPT-0, but yeah, so those, those are sort of the big ones that we're starting with. There's also word that the company behind ChatGPT has uh, its own tool to detect text generated by artificial intelligence. OpenAI says it works a quarter of the time. Someone should get the AI to write the screenplay of a new version of Cyrano in which the awkward with words character uses ChatGPT to woo Roxanne. You don't have to pay me for that concept. Just spell Roncaccio right in the credits. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at Viking.com. You'll still see Boeing 747s in the sky with the pregnant guppy profile. How can you miss them? But the last one to come off the production line has now been delivered. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab has more on how the wide-body design that could carry up to 500 passengers changed air travel. The Boeing 747 took its first commercial flight in January of 1970. And Michael Lombardi, a historian at Boeing, says it was a magical time in history. 
it was just a couple months after Neil Armstrong had stepped onto the moon. When we believed we could do anything, when our only limit was our imagination. The jumbo jet was the airline industry's equivalent of the moon landing because it revolutionized air travel. It started to democratize flight. Before the 747, flying was expensive, a luxury for businessmen and the upper class. Bob Vanderlinden is curator of air transportation at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. In the 1930s, it cost $300 to fly to California. Well, that's what it costs today if you get a good ticket. But the difference is huge. $300 in the 1930s bought you a car. The new jet had more than double the capacity of its predecessor. It featured a new turbofan engine that made flight more fuel efficient, and it had a special nose that opened and allowed the loading of larger cargo. And aesthetically, Vanderlinden says it also had a distinct style. It's one of the few airplanes most people could recognize. The wings are swept a little bit more, the, the four engines on it, and of course, the big hump that's on the nose. But for Boeing, big rewards didn't come without big risks. Scott Marowitz is executive editor at travel website The Points Guy. They had to build a plane from scratch that had never been this big before. It was so big, Boeing had to build a new plant to house it and figure out how existing runways and gates could accommodate its size. It took over two years and more than a billion dollars, and it almost bankrupted the company. But its contract with Pan Am, then one of the largest and most glamorous carriers, helped solidify its place in the industry. Until now. The 747's demise can only be blamed on Boeing. Merowitz says Boeing has since launched smaller jets with fewer engines that allow airlines to offer more long-haul, non-stop flights from smaller cities. Only a handful of airlines still fly the remaining 747s in the sky. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Now, Boeing rival Airbus has an A380 that can take 850 passengers if everyone flies coach. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Celebrity Series, Broadway's Jessica Vosk, pays tribute to Sondheim, Judy Garland, Elton John, and more. February 5th at Symphony Hall, CelebritySeries.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.